Hey, good morning, Deer Creek. Good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to be reading uh, verses 13, close to the end of the chapter. And um, then we're going to pray, ask God to bless our time this morning, and then we'll dive into our teaching this morning. So Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, this is the word of God. Let's read it together. Now Paul and his companions sent sail from Paphos and came to Pergia and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed 
from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that uh, even on a day like today when it's cold, we know that this cold shows us your faithfulness, the faithfulness that you told Noah that season will follow season, that day will follow day, year will follow year, and you will continue to be faithful to your promises. And God, as we read about these promises that you gave to David, that we are beneficiaries of, we pray, God, that this morning our, our, our eyes would be cast to the great promise that you've sent your son Jesus. Help us see him in this passage. Help us see him in these scriptures and help us turn and repent and place our trust in him for salvation unto eternal life. We ask this all in his name. And all God's people said, amen. You, you may not realize this, uh, really all the basic features of a worship service, like what we do at Deer Creek and what we do every Sunday morning, what countless Christians do throughout all the world every Sunday, it's actually patterned off of the synagogue worship that happened during the time of Jesus, during the time of Paul, during the rise of the early church. If you were to walk into a Jewish synagogue around the year AD 46, which is right at, around the time that we're reading here in Acts chapter 13, you'd witness this recurring pattern over and over every week. The service would begin with a reading of the Shema. This comes from Deuteronomy, what we actually started our service with. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And you should instruct one another in these words. That's how a worship service would start. It was God's way of calling his people to come and be in his presence, come and worship him, to devote their heart and their energy to God. That was the pattern. That's how it begun. And following that, it'd be a time devoted to prayer, a time where people sang to God, praised God, asked for forgiveness and grace, and then came the heart of the service. The center, the heart of everything that they did, they would have an extended time of reading, a reading from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then there would be a reading of the prophets. These would have been readings from books like 1st and 2nd Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Haggai. And then, just like we did today in a worship service today, they would teach on the passages that they read. Explain what the passages meant, explain how the passages were relevant, explain how those passages were applicable to life in the first century, and they preached for like two and a half hours. You think this is long? <laughs> well, yeah, they taught for a long time. But that was the pattern. They did it every Sabbath, every Saturday, week in, week out. Those features recurred over and over again. Shema, prayer, read the law, read the prophets, teach the law, teach the prophets, do it again next week, lather, rinse, repeat, all up in one, right? Every week. So you have to imagine, if you were a first century Jew, living in 46 AD, you would have been intimately acquainted with the scriptures. When they saw the world, they saw it through the lens of Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. They made sense of life through the stories of Israel and Moses and David and Isaiah, Abraham and Ruth. That's to say they would have known the story of Scripture. They would have known it like the back of their hand. They would have known how God created the world, a story many of us are familiar with, how a loving God, created everything that we see today by his great power, how God took nothing and all he did was speak 
and brought life into existence, all forms of life from the single cell organism that we can't see with the naked eye to the super clusters in outer space. In every act of life, God, as he's creating everything, says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And he ends by saying, indeed, it is very good. They knew that story. They also knew God uniquely created humanity. Above all of creation, there was humankind, Adam and Eve, uniquely blessed above all creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It's how the whole thing, the whole creation narrative comes to a conclusion. That was their story. Week in, week out, in the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, a story many of us know well, but here's the difference. We generally, as a culture, stop at Genesis 1.27. We like that part of the story. Loving God, good creation, blessed humanity, made in God's image. But a Jew in the first century knew, they would say, hold on, wait, that's not the end of the story. It's not how it stands. That's act one. Act two adds to the story. Act two begins with Adam, this creature made in God's image, the crown of God's creation, turning against God, rebelling against God, sinning against the creator of the universe and ushering in for the first time ever into God's very good creation, things like warfare, like the now half million people who have lost their lives in the Ukraine-Russian conflict that started two years ago, almost to the day. For the first time into God's good world, sin ushered in darkness, despair, illness, like those of us in this room that are battling through chemo and radiation and treatments. Into God's good creation, Adam introduced for the first time illness, tears, heartache, weeping, loss, suffering, misery, curse, pain, and death. An ordinary, typical, everyday Jew in the first century, they knew Act 2 is part of the story. That's what makes sense of the rest of the story. Those two are part and parcel of the law and the prophets. After Genesis 1.27, they revisited it week after week. The basic pattern at the heart of every synagogue service. There was not just Act 1, creation, good, blessing, life. But Act 2, the story of fall, sin, curse, and the greatest enemy to enter God's good world, even death itself. So it's to these first century Jews, these first century faithful men and women who went to the synagogue week in and week out that the message of Jesus first went. We saw this last week. For the first time, Christians went on this worldwide mission into the Roman world, into synagogues is where they usually went when they began their journey. And that's what we see in verse 13, Acts chapter 13. Read with me, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, who you'll recall last week we talked about this. This is Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. These men were set apart by God, sent out by the church to start new churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. This is modern-day Turkey, if you want to know where this is at, south-central Turkey. 
And John left them. He returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This was the largest area in a region known as Galatia. And continue on. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And now we know what to expect, right? They would have followed this pattern. And at this pattern, they came to the heart of the service. They read from the law and the prophets. And the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, then say it. Paul, Barnabas, we want you to teach on this passage this morning. We just read the law of the prophets. We want you to explain these scriptures. Come explain to us how these are applicable to our lives. Encourage us, teach us, instruct us. Man, this would be fantastic to have. You know, these rulers of the synagogues, we didn't really prepare a message this week. So let's see. You right there. Come on up here. Why don't you instruct us this morning? That would be nice. I'd like that. You know, maybe I'll call some of you out in that way in the future. In reality, what probably happened is Paul Barnabas, they met with these rulers of the synagogue beforehand, before the service started, and these men knew their background. They knew Paul. They knew Paul was instructed by one of the greatest rabbis in the ancient world, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He was known as a strict Pharisee, so the rulers knew. These men know how to handle the scriptures. They know how to teach it. They know how to instruct us. And notice what Paul does in the instruction. He reviews the story. He reviews the history to this synagogue, paying special attention to the leaders that God had always graciously given his people. Take a look again. So Paul stood up, this is verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He's now talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these men who God called to himself to be leaders of his people. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their slavery in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out, a reference here now to Moses, the book of Exodus. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, this is a reference to Moses, uh, sorry, Moses' successor, a man by the name of Joshua. He says, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. Then he gave them Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, all of this history, all of this focus on the leaders, it's all driving toward one point, one man, one leader. Verse 22, after God removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom God testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. All of God's history all of God's story, the law, the prophets, everything, Acts 1 to Acts 2, Act 2 after the fall, was leading to this man, to David, great David, the king of Israel. You got to think, right? If you're in this audience here, in, in this synagogue, during the first century, and you're hearing your story recounted right before your eyes, you knew everything that these people had endured, what God's people had experienced living in a fallen creation. They knew what it meant to live post-Genesis 127. 
Before David, the Jewish people, they, they spent 400 years in chattel slavery in Egypt. 400 years. They endured 40 years. Even once they were liberated, they endured 40 years of wandering in a scorching desert wilderness. They endured, once they got to the land that God had promised them, they endured raids and invasions from neighboring kingdoms like the Moabites, the Philistines, the Edomites, and others. They lived through corrupt leaders, corrupt prophets, corrupt priests, unjust judges, even after the reign of David. Corruption continued. God's people endured trial after trial after trial. In the year 740 B.C., the Assyrian Empire, they raided the northern kingdom of Israel, obliterated the whole northern kingdom, and then deported hundreds of thousands of people all the way north into Assyria. This is how they did it, by the way. Historical documents show that they took fish hooks, large fish hooks, put them through the lips of these Jewish people, put it through the nose of these Jewish people, and then they would tie a rope on those fish hooks to another person who also had fish hooks in them, and they dragged them hundreds of miles north to be slaves in Assyria. God's people after that then had to endure the Babylonian Empire, which was much more ruthless than the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire sieged Jerusalem, burned down the city walls, burned the temple to the ground, leaving Jerusalem as nothing but ash and ruins. They too were exiled 900 miles north to Babylon where they spent another 70 years in forced slavery. Even as Paul was teaching, these people knew, we're not free people, we are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. In fact, just 25 years after Paul's sermon here, the Roman Empire would enter Jerusalem again and destroy the city walls again. They would destroy the temple again, and neither the temple nor the walls have been rebuilt to this day. You didn't have to tell them, we live in a fallen creation, that we live post-Genesis 1.27, that we live in Acts 2. You didn't have to tell them they had eyes. To this day, we know this to be true. No matter how much progress we make as a society, no matter how much we advance as people, everywhere we look, we know we live in a fallen creation. Progress can't erase that reality. You live in the United States in 2024. You realize this. We live in the wealthiest area, era in human history. No other people throughout history have known the kind of wealth or comfort we experience today. In 2024, we live with the lowest infant mortality rate that the world's ever known. We live today with almost instantaneous access to healthcare. Just the other day, I was on telehealth, got antibiotics for a sore throat. Two days later, I was better pretty awesome. You ever been asked the question, you know, if you lived in any century, what century would you live in? I always had a stock answer to that. I would always say, oh, I'd live in the 1700s. Absolutely. Just before the American Revolution, you know, there was new thoughts about freedom and equality. Those were taking shape. It seems like an exciting time. And then I read this book about a man who lived in the 18th century. And he was describing how he had migraine headaches. And do you know what they did, the standard treatment of the time for migraine, chronic headaches was? It was called leech therapy. That's right. Yeah, you'd take hundreds of leeches and you'd put them on your torso and your abdomen and then on your forehead. And somehow this alleviated headaches, so they thought. And you know what I thought after that? I kind of like 2024. <laughs> it's not so bad. I, I think I'll stay here in the 21st century. Yet despite all of our progress, 
all of our prosperity, all of our wealth, all of our health, we still can't erase this reality. We live in a fallen creation. In 2022, more than one in six American adults had a major depressive episode. Which means you look around at the person that's sitting next to you, the people around you. Just keep that in mind. Be kind to the people around you because it's a good likelihood those people are walking through that kind of darkness. Harvard reports that it's fascinating. This is one of the first time they've seen this throughout history. Cardiovascular disease, deaths by diabetes, stroke, heart attack, those things are decreasing. You know what's increasing? They call them deaths of despair. These are deaths of alcohol abuse, suicide, and drug overdose. Those are actually on the rise. Since Columbine, 1999, there have been 19 mass school shootings in the United States with double-digit fatalities and serious injuries. That's nearly one school shooting a year for over two decades. Sin, curse, death, they're still around. No matter where you look, no matter how much progress we make, we know Act 1 isn't the only part of the story. We can't avoid it. That's, that's why Paul, teaching, he gives special attention to these leaders. He's driving to David, not just because David's a man after God's own heart. That's not the only reason. But because God, to David, made certain promises, certain promises that were staggering to the ears during uh, David's reign. Listen to God's promise. As, as David was dying, as he was approaching the end of his kingship, God visits him and, and says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, David, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall no more afflict them as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It was to David, great David, that God had promised, I will send my son. I will send my king to be your savior. He will establish my kingdom Forever, It will not be subject to raids like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Rome. This king will finally, finally give my people rest. He will remove all affliction and violence. That was the promise David received from the hand of God. In David's offspring, a king, a savior would come and finally sin would be removed. The curse would be reversed Death would be destroyed. Creation and fall, Acts 1 and 2, would lead to a third act, the act of salvation. From everything that was ushered in because of the sin of Adam, God's Son would finally restore salvation and life. 
So Paul, instructing these faithful Jews, these people who knew these promises, says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The king has finally come. Verse 23. Of David's offspring, God has finally brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised he would. Finally. The Savior's come. Leader after leader to David, that promise has finally come to fulfillment, finally. And God wanted everybody to know that Jesus was coming. So much so that he sent a forerunner that, one, that, that made everybody know the king is coming. The king is coming. His name was John the Baptist. You probably remember him. Paul goes on, he says, before Jesus coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not the promised king. No, behold, after me one is coming. He's the true king. The sandals of his feet I'm not even worthy to untie. God wanted everybody to know that this promise was coming. Men of Israel, you who fear God, act Three has begun. The promised king of David is here. Jesus is the son of God, the savior. Jesus is the king. You know, when Christians were first persecuted, that was the statement that got them in trouble. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Just for example, the, the year 249 AD, there was an emperor, his name was known as Decius. He was before a, a military leader. He'd become the emperor of Rome, the Caesar. And in one of his first acts was to issue an edict that everyone in the empire, they had to make sacrifices to the Roman gods. You had to do this burnt offering, you know, put a pinch of incense into a burnt offering so that the gods would be honored. But more importantly, they must also burn incense for the well-being of the emperor, for Caesar. And as you do so, you know what you would declare? Caesar is Lord. Christians couldn't do it. Scores of Christians were martyred. Men by the name of Fabian, Babylus, Alexander. These were three church leaders. They refused to do it. So they were arrested, put in a Roman prison where they starved to death after just a couple of years. All because they couldn't follow Decius's edict. They couldn't say Caesar is king. How could they? Decius was king of the Roman Empire. Jesus was king of the kingdom of God, the promised king of David. Decius thought himself worthy of sacrifice. Jesus was the king who sacrificed himself. Decius wanted to be called king. How could they possibly call anyone king now that Jesus, the promised savior, had finally arrived, had finally come? But notice Paul says, when this king came, when Jesus came, not everybody recognized him. He, he continues his sermon. He says in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us have been sent the message of this salvation. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath... They fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time, to have him executed. You know, some scholars, they speculate, they, they think that maybe the, the reading of the prophets on this day in the synagogue, maybe it came from Isaiah the prophet. And it actually makes sense when you think about it. Because Isaiah prophesied about a coming Savior. And it was interesting, when, when Isaiah spoke and prophesied about this coming Savior, they, they said that, or he said that this Savior would die a cursed death. The curse that we deserve for our sins, that is what this Savior would have to endure. Notice the key phrases. Isaiah writes of this Savior. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave, the Savior's grave, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Paul would have said to this synagogue, don't you see what the prophet says? What we just read, that's one and the same with what Jesus has done. Spoken of hundreds of years before, he's the savior Isaiah spoke about. He was innocent. He had no deceit in his mouth. Yet he was condemned by the rulers of Jerusalem who didn't recognize him. Though we read of him every single week, they were blind when he came. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus had no guilt worthy of death. He he was the only human being who has never sinned. He had done no violence, yet he was put to execution by Pontius Pilate crucified as they made his grave with people who are wicked because they didn't understand the prophets. He was the blessed son of God, the savior, the king, yet he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities, dying the cursed death that we deserve for our sins in rejecting Jesus, the leaders in Jerusalem, actually fulfilled the promises that God had made through Isaiah. That's what Paul says in verse 29. Continuing his sermon, Paul makes it very clear. He said, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, the tree he was crucified in, on and laid him in a tomb. To be nailed to a tree, to be crucified, was the sign of a cursed death. As Deuteronomy, the law read every Sabbath, said, quote, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain there all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. 
When Jesus died on the cross, nailed to the tree, he was carrying out all that was written of him by the prophet Isaiah. He took all the sin of his people upon himself. He bore the curse that sin brought into God's good creation, and he died under the curse of God that we should have died for the rebellion of our sin. As one author put it, King Jesus sacrificed himself under the wrath of God for your sin so that God forbid you would ever have to. Paul, actually, writing to this same audience, the church in Galatia, just five years later, would put it this way. He would say, Christ saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Men of Israel, you who fear God, don't you see? Don't you see? Don't miss what the rulers in Jerusalem missed. What you read in this synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, Saturday after Saturday, the law and the prophets, don't you see, they all point to this Jesus, the king promised to David, the savior promised by Isaiah. He has finally come and he sacrificed himself for your sin and your rebellion against God. It really makes me wonder. I, I really wonder this. Does everyone here really know this Jesus? This king and savior. You do realize Jesus is still the most recognized person in Western history. He's, he's actually still the most recognized person in the world today. They, they've done studies where they show pictures of famous people and they'll also show like icons and, uh, you know, logos of corporations. And if you recognize any of the pictures or logos or whatever it is, you know, you, you give it a thumbs up. Jesus is still number one. Still in front of Nike and McDonald's and even Peyton Manning. People know Jesus, but do they know this Jesus? Many people believe in Jesus, the great teacher. And, and Jesus was a great teacher, to be sure. Oh, man. Jesus drew crowds of thousands upon thousands of people. He's a great teacher. Other people believe and know Jesus, the social revolutionary. You know, whether... You're on the right or the left. Jesus is either the champion of personal rights and religious autonomy and freedom, or he's the champion and advocate of social justice and equality. Pick your political Jesus. People love when Jesus can make a point politically that people don't have to make themselves. People love that Jesus. Still others of us believe and know Jesus. He's kind of the spiritual guru. He's the one who just kind of want to gives me, gives me inner peace and harmony and live my best life here and have balance within myself. Some people, they go against all historical scholarship altogether. They don't believe Jesus was even a person at all. They don't even believe he was real. And I wonder, do we know this Jesus? The Jesus Paul dedicated his life to and spoke about Jesus, the king who bore the curse of sin in our place, the king to whom all the law and the prophets point. Because I tell you, no Jesus short of that is the real, living, true 
Jesus. You can admire Jesus' teaching and ethics. You can admire his social concern and his activism. You can appreciate the spiritual connection Jesus provides and how he helps you live life each day to the fullest. Yet, if you do not know this Jesus, the king sacrificed for humankind, crucified on your behalf, who bore the curse of your sin, then you cannot be saved. It is this Jesus that saves and no other. Paul knew this synagogue, they need this Jesus. They don't need Jesus, the therapeutic healer. They need the living, real, breathing king crucified, the one promised by the law and the prophets. And Paul just goes on. He says, hey, it's not just those, those scriptures. All of the scriptures, Psalm 2, the one that begins saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That refers to Jesus. That's verse 33 of his sermon. Verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 55, when God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Oh, he was speaking of Jesus. Verse 35, again, in another Psalm, it says, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That too Reference to Jesus. Written by David, but it's a reference to Jesus. Because you have to know this about Jesus as well. Jesus is the only person born of the flesh to rise again from the dead. Jesus is the only person whose flesh did not see corruption. King Jesus, who sacrificed himself, defeated the great enemy, death itself, because he did not stay in the grave. Verse thirty. Very clearly, Paul says, even though Jesus was laid in a tomb and died, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee and Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers like David, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. No other person born of the flesh has ever escaped death. No other king has risen from the grave, not even David. As great as David was, we know where his tomb is. He was a man after God's own heart, and he is corrupting in that tomb. Paul says, verse 36, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw Corruption. He is like every single person who's ever been born. We live, we die, we rot. But he whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Only Jesus can take away your sin. Only Jesus can give you eternal life. Only Jesus can save you from the curse and death your sin deserves. In David's offspring, Jesus, what God promised to the fathers in the law and the prophets has been fulfilled. It's in this Jesus 
We have a king who was crucified bearing the curse of our sins so we can be forgiven. It's in this Jesus we have a savior who was raised again from the dead so we can have eternal life. It's in this Jesus and no other that the story of God continues. It's not just creation. It's not just fall, but it is salvation in Jesus. He is the end of the story. In this Jesus, the only Jesus who can save Even though Adam's fall ushered in sin and death into God's good world, in God's Son we have forgiveness and eternal life, eternal life in his kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus himself will remove every affliction. He will remove every act of violence, a kingdom where even the greatest enemy, death itself, is finally, finally destroyed. Let me close on this. You know, there's a family in our congregation, and they... they, Recently, over Christmas break and for New Year's, they, they went back to uh, where they grew up. They grew up in the Midwest, and they went back to go see family. And the grandmother of this family, during their stay, about halfway through their stay, she was taken to the hospital. Now, this, this lady was 72. She'd already been can- battling cancer for over a year. She'd been going through radiation. She'd been going through chemo treatments. And it wasn't unexpected But still, this family felt the pain of illness, tears, heartache, weeping, loss, suffering, misery, curse, pain. As they went and visited this grandma in the hospital, and they visit with her for a number of hours. They're enjoying time together. I mean, they're they're, they're a Christian family. They're singing hymns at her bedside. And as they're leaving the hospital, the three-year-old daughter of this family looks up to mom and dad and says, Mom, Dad, is that the last time we're ever going to see Grandma? I remember hearing that story and in the blink of an eye, you know, I had, I had two thoughts go through my mind. The first was, it was a document I had actually read earlier that week as I was studying. It's a document written in the 1930s and, and it outlines the basic beliefs of what's known as humanism. It's a, it's a philosophy, a philosophy that says there's no God and by scientific knowledge and a desire to meet the needs of people here and now we want to try and live life to the fullest. Statement number two of what's known as the Humanist Manifesto read this. Promises of immortality are both an illusion and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. There's no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. Thus, we strive for the good life here and now, for that's what really matters. We aim for our fullest possible development and animate our lives with a deep sense of purpose, finding wonder and awe in the joys and beauties of human existence, its challenges and tragedies, and even in the inevitability and finality of death. Then came thought number two. But God raised him from the dead. Creation and fall are only part of the story. In Jesus, that's not the end of the story. Death is not the end. In Jesus, sin has been forgiven. The curse has been born in the king. And the greatest enemy, death, is not final. Is that the last time we're going to ever see grandma? In Jesus, the king... The answer is an emphatic 
absolute, unequivocal, without reservation, no. We will see her again at the resurrection. When Jesus' kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On that day, we will be restored by our great king and savior. Illness, tears, pain, death will be finally destroyed by King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, you are the creator, ruler, sustainer, the king, the one to whom all glory, honor, power, and dominion belongs. You, you are the one who spoke and it was created. You, you brought life, a very good creation into existence. You, you made us human beings in your own glorious image to, to live lives of blessing and flourishing. And yet God, us by our sin, by our rebellion against you, by our fall, have brought curse and death into your once good creation. God, that, that's what we contribute to your story, but we thank you that that's not the end of the story. That salvation in King Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself in love for us, who bore the curse that we deserve, who suffered and died in our place, died the death that we deserve for our sin. We, we thank you that we now in him have the sure blessings of the kingdom of God promised to David. We have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, protection and security in your kingdom, which will span 10,000 times, 10,000 times, 10,000 years. In Jesus, we have the hope. And we thank you for that hope, God, that, that John... John the Apostle saw of a new heavens and a new earth where death is finally destroyed, where sin is abolished and finally removed. In Jesus, we have immortality and death is not final. As John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, the one filled with sin and curse and death had passed away and it was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Death itself will die. And he who is seated on the throne will say, Behold, I have made all things new. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God, this is your story. And we thank you for such a great salvation that is entailed in it. In Jesus' name, amen.